Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, I have an interview with Roger McNamee. His official bio at Elevation Partners, an investment firm, says that since 2017, he has been involved in, quote, a campaign to trigger a national conversation about the dark side of social media, unquote. He's the author of a book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, published by HarperCollins in 2019. The book has an account of his role as an investor and advisor to the company and his ultimate recognition of the harms it causes at scale. To many of my listeners, his voice on these issues is well known. He is a frequent commentator on technology on shows such as Squawk Alley on CNBC and on Ali Velshi's show on MSNBC, and he is a regular at conferences that delve into topics at the intersection of tech and democracy. He knows the tech bro culture well enough to have served as a technical advisor for multiple seasons of HBO's Silicon Valley series, a show that lampoons the people and industry there. Roger is also a philanthropist and a musician. He plays in the bands Moon Alice and the Doobie Decibel System on bass and guitar. If you follow him on Twitter, at Moon Alice, you'll get to hear his frequent live streams, sometimes solo and sometimes with the band. I caught up with Roger last week to get his sense of where the movement to regulate and hold technology firms to account is at the moment, particularly in the U.S. Here's Roger. I'm Roger McNamee. I'm an American citizen who's really concerned about the future of democracy, public health, privacy, and competition in the era of internet platforms. Thank you, Roger. And I want to just use this conversation on some level to look back a bit at the last few years, where we've got to with regard to a movement to regulate big tech, to think about the intersection of technology and democracy, where we're at today and where we're headed in the future. But I think just for the sake of my listeners, for the two or three that may not know who you are, can you just kind of give some folks a bit of context on your your personal journey why Roger McNamee is involved in these issues. I first decided I needed to go to Silicon Valley in 1978 when I was going back to college. And my brother gave me a speaking spell, which was a toy to teach kids how to spell words. And he said, if you can make this thing talk with a two-line text display and a keyboard, pretty soon you're going to be able to make a handheld product that holds all your personal information. This is 1978. So it's one year after the Apple II shipped, three years before the IBM PC, and my brother is describing the Palm Pilot, which came out, I think, 18 years later. I go back to college determined to be the guy who invents the Palm Pilot. Turned out I was a terrible engineer. And so that didn't work out. So I was looking for a way to get to Silicon Valley so at least I could be there. And in 1982, I got a job at a mutual fund company called T. Rowe Price Associates in Baltimore, Maryland, as the technology analyst. Keep in mind, this is an era in which the dominant form of technology was aerospace and defense. It was military electronics. So I was the defense analyst, but also did software. And you know, by 1985, the personal computer industry was a real deal. And I, as the person covering that, convinced the firm to change its strategy in tech. When they started a tech fund, I became the portfolio manager of the tech fund in the late 80s. It was lucky enough to have a great record, show up in 1991, got invited by Kleiner Perkins to join their firm and create the first crossover fund. It was called Integral Capital Partners. 
So that means I was there when Netscape showed up, when Larry and Sergey showed up with the original idea for Google, when Jeff Bezos brought Amazon in. By just pure dumb luck, I was in exactly the right place as the internet took off. In 2006, somebody at Facebook, senior executive there, called me up and said, my boss is facing an existential crisis. He needs to talk to somebody who's been around a long time, who can keep their mouth shut and can give them good perspective. The person was Mark Zuckerberg. He came into my office. He had just turned 22. The company had 9 million users. It was still only high school students and college students. They didn't even have newsfeed yet. Mark comes into my office and before he says anything, I said, look, in order for you to understand where I'm coming from, I need to tell you what worries me. And I tell him in two minutes, my big fear, which was that his investors would try to sell the company out from under. And I thought because he was the first person to require authenticated identity and to give people control of the privacy who could see their data, that those two things were the cornerstone that would make the first successful social media platform. And that it could be a really good thing for humanity and that I hoped he wouldn't sell the company. And I told him specifically, two companies were gonna offer a billion dollars for it. Long story short, it turned out the reason Mark was coming to see me was that Yahoo had offered a billion dollars. That was one of the two companies I mentioned. And he didn't wanna sell it. And so I helped him craft a way to not sell the company. And that led to my being an advisor for the ensuing three years because his management team all wanted to sell the company. So he needed to rebuild the management team with people who would be good allies. One of the people that I brought in there, one of the people I suggested and then helped to negotiate in was a woman at Google named Sheryl Sandberg. So my engagement with Facebook began in 2006 when the company was private. About a year later, I got a chance to become an investor. I helped to bring Sheryl in. I really believed that privacy and authenticated identity would allow Facebook to be a really great firm. And they might get up to, who knows, maybe 100 million users in North America and Europe. And they could do all that without harming anybody. By 2009, it had become clear to me that Mark's vision was much, much bigger than that. He was talking about a billion users and he was talking about going into places and doing business under circumstances that frankly really bothered me. It was pretty obvious he no longer needed the kind of advice I was giving him. He'd rebuilt his management team. And so I stopped paying attention. And the flaw in my reasoning after that was confirmation bias. I wanted to believe that as Mark grew older, that he would mature and that Cheryl, between he and Cheryl, that they would guide the company in a way that would produce great outcomes. And things would happen between 2009 and 2016 that didn't fit that pattern. But it was January of 2016 when it really hit me between the eyes. That was when I started to see hate speech on Facebook targeted at Hillary Clinton that was notionally coming from Facebook groups associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And then two months later, there was an episode related to Black Lives Matter where a company was using Facebook's ad tools to scrape Facebook and then selling data. The piece de resistance was the Brexit referendum in the UK. Long story short, in October 2016, I go to Market Cheryl with my concerns in written form and try to persuade them before the US election that it's really important that Facebook recognize that its platform was being used by bad actors to harm innocent people. Everybody knows what, what happened. I mean, knowing their style, I talked to them privately without saying a word for months, but they didn't budge at all. And so I realized 
I had to become an activist. And so I did. So since early 2017, I've been trying to raise the alarm and I joined forces initially with Tristan Harris and went to Washington, D.C. And Tristan formed the Center for Humane Technology. I remained focused on D.C. Uh, Renee DeResta, who had joined us, went to the Stanford Internet Observatory. But the three of us, plus Sandy Parakilis in 2017, were in Washington trying to raise the alarm. And you can imagine this is the first year of Trump. And it was, I mean, Congress was not at its best moment, but people did listen. And we built a lot of great relationships. And I've worked them ever since. 2017, of course, uh, the beginning of not only the Trump years, but really scandal after scandal uh, for Facebook in particular, for social media more generally. I don't know if you want to kind of quickly sum up, get us up through that period um, so we can kind of set the stage for today. The, the thing that was really difficult as an activist was to get people to recognize that the issues were not an accident. They were not a byproduct of well-intentioned strategy. They were actually the predictable result of a business model built around human attention. And if you want to get people's attention in a very crowded media marketplace, the surest way to do it is to either scare them or outrage them. And there's three kinds of content that do that for most people. Hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And the reason they work so well is that our self-preservation instinct, flight or fight, kicks in. So even if we're not drawn to it, we have to pay attention to it just as a matter of self-preservation. It's like when you drive by an accident, you look at the accident. You can't help but rubberneck because your most basic human psychology is drawn there. And to build a business model around that concept without regard for the certainty that it would lead to bad outcomes was irresponsible. To do it at nation scale you know, with billions of active monthly users that, in my mind, was guaranteed to produce a terrible outcome. And in sitting down with members of Congress who'd met all these people and, like me, liked the people, the hardest part was to get them to recognize that the challenge here is that the folks who run Google, the folks who run Facebook, they're not bad people, but they have a different value system. You know, they really believe in engineering concepts like efficiency. They believe in scale and speed. And our country is based on Enlightenment values like democracy and self-determination, which are inefficient by design because they have deliberation built into them. And in a competition at nation scale between efficiency and democracy, democracy doesn't stand a prayer. That's really what the conflict was about. And it's taken, you know, to me, Myanmar in 2017 should have stopped the whole thing. It's like, what are you talking about? Right? I mean, you don't buy into the issues in the U.S. election or Brexit. Okay, fine. Let's look at Myanmar. There you got ethnic cleansing. And then early 2018, we have Cambridge Analytica. So we're back looking at 2016, and now we've got data. And it's like really obvious. And then you have the terrorist act in New Zealand. And it's like, wait a minute, that entire thing was orchestrated to do this, right? And then you look at some of these mass killings where the people were radicalized on Facebook or on other internet platforms. And so you have these things building, and each one would generate a, a little bit of press focus, but always lacking in context. People always sitting there and just assuming, well, this was an unfortunate thing. And the problem is that's how the company's positioned. They view their mission as so important that a failure is 
well, it's like a failure in any form of invention, right? You know, Edison used to talk about the fact that he, you know, every time he would try something that didn't work, it wasn't a failure. It was just an experiment that didn't work on the path to something better. And so inside Facebook in particular, they trained their employees to view issues like Myanmar and Christchurch as simply learning experiences on the way to a more perfect Facebook. We saw a little bit of, of that this week. Uh, Adam Masseri, who you know runs Instagram, uh, made some comments. I think just yesterday that kind of hit that theme. You know, he he made this sort of statement in a conversation with with Ryan Mack uh, that that flowed out of an announcement that Instagram had made around the way it deals with racism on the site. You know, where he kind of said, you know, technology isn't good or bad; it just is. Which you know sort of immediately sparked a, a blowback from folks in in my corner of the world who maybe look at things slightly more like you do layers of not only technology, but, you know, social circumstances, profit motives and incentives and various other things that layer on top of the technology that aren't quite so simple. Well, Mr. Mosseri is saying this as though technology is inevitable and that there's nothing we can do about it. And that's ridiculous. Technology is a choice. In my book, I have a, one of the chapters of or actually for the book, I think it's Katzenberg who said, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. And I think this is the core point. Technology embodies the values the people created with an additional factor for incompetence, right? So they're, you know, you're going to get things that are unintended. And so what's going on here is Mr. Mosseri is trying to use the fact that it's neutral as an excuse. And the answer is, I'm sorry, no. When there is an ethnic cleansing in Myanmar that happens because you failed to have Burmese-speaking people, enough of them, monitoring the situation, you did not have people on the ground, and yet you created the default communication system in this country that was then used by the military to instigate an ethnic cleansing. You are an accessory. You know, you're not innocent here. And when this happens over and over again, you have to start asking the question, what should be the legal remedy here? Because this is not inevitable. These are choices made in pursuit of profit by people who should know better. I think it's fair to say you summed up uh, a lot of your critique and put an underline under your activism with your book in 2019. Uh, Zucked, which I'm sure is also something that many of my listeners have both read or are familiar with, um, or certainly have seen you expand on the different themes in in that book. You know, on some level, I, I feel like there are certain parts of the book, you know, Congress gets serious, uh, et cetera, where you seem to think that maybe change is more imminent than it turns out to have been. You know, a couple of years later, looking back, uh, we're still kind of maybe slightly more stuck than you might have imagined we'd be. Where do you think we are at this moment, reasonably well into the Biden administration at this point and the 117th Congress? Not a lot of progress, really, since you published the book in, in February of 2019. So I think you're correct that I was more optimistic than, in fact, I should have been. The thing that made me optimistic was that the Trump administration, for all of its faults, was the first in many presidencies to take antitrust seriously. And in the House of Representatives, there was a really interesting core group of people 
who focused on safety, some on privacy, and some on antitrust. And in working with these people, I developed an enthusiasm for what was going to happen that turns out was misplaced because the structural flaws in Congress today are really extreme. And we see this playing out in the response to COVID. And I was naive about that. I am more optimistic today because the Biden administration has appointed extraordinary people into the key regulatory positions that surround this problem. So Lena Khan has been appointed to be the the head of the Federal Trade Commission. Tim Wu is part of the President's Economic Council. Rohit Chopra, who is a member of the Federal Trade Commission, is going to go run the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. And now Jonathan Cantor has been appointed, but not yet confirmed to be the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department. These are four of the I mean, these are the four really great people that you could have appointed to those positions. And the Biden administration got it exactly right and has clearly indicated that this is a priority. And so that gives me some hope. Now, the challenge that we face here is that our democratic system requires deliberation in order to move forward on an issue like regulation of internet platforms. And Google and Facebook control the core communications media on which that deliberation is going to take place. And I, in retrospect, was too hopeful about our ability to transcend that, that increased attention in the press, of which there was an extraordinary amount beginning in March 2018 with the Cambridge Analytica scandal. That that scrutiny from the press, from the greater amount of energy in the academic community, particularly with respect to issues of safety and privacy, would translate into action. And what I underestimated was the willingness and ability of internet platforms to subvert those things with not just their platforms, but also with their money. The amount of influence that they've been able to exert by funding academic programs, by funding NGOs, by funding congressional campaigns, by saying the same thing over and over again. I mean, they know more about human attention than anybody. And they are really good at crafting a message that buys them time. You know, oh, we're so sorry this went wrong. We promise to do better next time. We'll study this thing and come back to you with a report in eight months in one day, knowing that the attention span of the politicians and the journals is probably 30 days. And, you know, Maybe they put the report out. Maybe they don't. You have to admire these people. They are really, really, really good at what they do. And our side is underfunded. We have too few people. And there's a lack of trust in our government that's been exacerbated by COVID. And let's face it, these guys have played a huge role in making this pandemic the disaster that it has been and making it impossible for our government to develop muscle tone under this really extreme test. Masseri almost said those things in his couple of tweets yesterday, you know, um, basically the, this, uh, what Kevin Roos, you know, queried is a f- even falsifiable statement, you know, whether social media has made the world slightly more, more better than it was or, or worse. I think one of the things that, that you've pointed out is that there are harms that are obvious that are right in our faces that, 
for some reason, get lost behind some of those arguments that are made about the totality of social media's impact on the world, you know, criminality on the platforms, for instance, or if, uh, if, other phenomena. If, if you just sit there and say, let's say that you're comfortable as a country excusing election interference, okay? And let us say that you will not get exercised over an ethnic cleansing in Myanmar because you can't even find it on a map. And let us say that you look at what happened in Christchurch as a fluke. I think that there is no way to excuse the level of criminality that takes place every day on these platforms. And here I'm talking about trade in antiquities, trade in exotic animals that are protected by global conventions, the promotion and sale of illegal drugs, medical scams, financial scams. These things are pervasive on these platforms. And they are all to one degree or another illegal. But isn't Mark Zuckerberg's argument kind of something along the lines of we're doing our best, we're investing a lot. You've got to kind of look away from I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The prevalence of these things. We don't while we we work out our AI. (laughs) We do we do not excuse the crimes of people with dark skin complexion on that basis. No, it doesn't work that way. The, the problem that we've got here is so let's let, okay. So let's say you're willing to excuse all the illegal activity that takes place on the platform. Let's just look at, at COVID and what happened with it. So 2019, May of 2019, the federal Bureau of investigation declares that QAnon is a dangerous extremist group. Facebook completely ignores this. Meanwhile, Facebook groups associated with QAnon are growing like crazy. They do nothing about it until June of 2020. So more than a year has passed. Now, what's happened in between? When queried in June of 2020 by NBC, Facebook admits that there are about there are at least 3 million users on Facebook groups and pages devoted to QAnon. The prior year, they had released a report that suggested that their analysis of Facebook groups indicated that 64% of the time when a person joined an extremist group on Facebook, they did so explicitly because of a Facebook recommendation. 0.64 times 3 million means Facebook radicalized approximately 2 million people into QAnon. And they did most of that during the window after the FBI warned. Now, it's June of 2020. They make some hand-waving moves, right? They close off a few pages. They do a bunch of things. But those people are radicalized. And again, the fundamental thing here is they simply repot to a different place. Coming up to the election, Trump starts the Stop the Steal movement. Who does he appeal to? He appeals to the QAnon gang. QAnon you know, was literally designed like a video game, right? And it simply embraced and absorbed every other conspiracy theory, right? It went and got Pizzagate. It got all of the anti-vax groups. It brought into this thing and it brought maggot in. So it becomes a core part of Trump's community. So Stop the Steal naturally gets hosted there. What does Facebook do? It knowingly allows Stop the Steal to organize what became the insurrection on January 6th. We have documented proof of this. How is that not a crime? Well, we'll see if if it's uh, considered by the select committee in any more detail. I certainly hope that it is. I'm sorry. This is is not for... 
I mean, Congress can do what it likes. I'm talking about something the Justice Department needs to be on top of. I mean, these are crimes. The fact that these are rich people is beside the point. Let's take another example. There are, I think, six or seven antitrust cases been filed against Google and Facebook. One of them filed by the uh, attorney general of the state of Texas and a group of other states relates to price fixing in the digital advertising market. It targets Google with Facebook as the co-conspirator. The evidence on this is, and I've checked this with a lot of antitrust people, it is really powerful. And the basic notion was Google was monopolizing a thing called header bidding advertising. It was a core part of the digital advertising market. Facebook pretended to create a competitor explicitly so that Google would divide the market with it. And apparently there's an email trail that even suggests an attempt by Facebook to initiate a shared defense if they got caught. Those are two counts of what is a section one violation of the antitrust law, the Sherman antitrust law. Section one is a is essentially a violation against entire markets, the attempt to corner it or price fix in a market. You don't have to prove harm. The mere attempt is a crime. It is a felony at the federal level, and it is a felony where the felony also applies to the executives. So the CEO of Bumblebee Tuna is currently in federal prison, or at least was sentenced to federal prison in October. I assume he's going to prison. There were a group of financial executives sentenced in October. The standard remedy is three plus years in prison for each count for the executives of the affected companies. Now, again, the Justice Department has a chance to take over this case and prosecute it that way. That is the standard remedy. You know, the question is, do we have the will to pursue people for criminal violations, which are all over the place around here? And, you know, we sit here going and always having these conversations in the frame suggested by Google and Facebook, as opposed to having it in the frame of the Constitution of the United States. I think that's a mistake. And, you know, again, I'm just one voice. You're listening to my interview with Roger McNamee, author of the book Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, published by HarperCollins in 2019. You can follow him on Twitter at Moonalice. So you mentioned Wu, Cantor, Khan you know, the, the kind of new faces in, in the Biden administration on antitrust. What are you hoping will happen in the near term, either on the regulatory front or in Congress? I know you're also uh, excited about some legislation proposed by uh, representatives Eshoo and Malinowski, uh, for instance. Are there things that you think might happen in the next six months to a year that may change, change the game a bit? Or do you think the window is closing on some level? I believe that we should have a sense of urgency. And I think, you know, I'm now very realistic about the challenges of both getting laws passed by Congress, but just as important how long it takes to implement changes in legislation in behavior. 
So what we need to use is the tools available to us. And the only tools available in the short run are antitrust laws. And if you want to protect the 2022 election, which I think should be our first consideration here, we have to go through that exercise of, of using the tools available. Antitrust law has been emasculated over 40 years, but there are things like the Texas case that clearly can be brought under existing law and which have real teeth. And the situation here is, you know, I'm not looking to put anybody in prison. What I'm looking to do is have the government use every tool in its power to change the nature of the power relationship between internet platforms and the United States of America. And I do believe that a felony indictment of executives is one of the things that might in fact, I mean, quite clearly pleased to their moral fiber haven't worked at all, right? I mean, these guys, it's not just that they haven't been cooperative, they have been disingenuous at every opportunity. And I think that's sad, right? Because I sit there and go, guys, where are you planning to live, right? What kind of country do you want to live in? And the thought experiment I want to ask everybody to run right now is if you knew that you were going to live in a world where you had no right of appeal, where these companies are totally in control of everything, would you wish that you'd done something different today to prevent that from happening? You know, wouldn't it make more sense to live in a world where people have new ideas can actually start them without fear of predation from internet giants. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where if you have a restaurant where, you know, some guy who funded by Silicon Valley can't disintermediate you from your customer and take 30% of your revenue for doing something you're already doing, which is delivering food. I mean, right now we've allowed a very small number of people to control aspects of our lives that historically were ours to choose. And I think we need to recognize that a lot of these products are unsafe. I was going to ask you about that, actually. You know, that that might be another kind of, I don't know, angle that seems to be opening up, uh, maybe even on a bipartisan level. You've got Republicans and Democrats who are raising safety and mental health uh, issues, particularly around children. Yeah. So, So let's look at that, because I usually start with artificial intelligence, which is, if you will, a a term applied to machine learning and a bunch of other things that grossly overstates the capability of the underlying products when they work well and completely elides a core issue, which is when you train a piece of software with data from the real world in a real world that has explicit bias, then the system that you create is going to carry forward that bias and it's going to carry forward it in a way that will be even harder to fight back against than it was in the real world. And we've seen this with predictive policing. We've seen this with resume reviews, right? Which discriminate against people of color, against women and older people. We've seen this in uh, mortgage applications with AIs that enforce digital redlining. And I think we have to have safety in AI. Look, think about facial recognition, same problem, misidentification of people has put people in prison. And, you know, these are not outliers. This stuff happens with incredible frequency and it's easy to predict. Now you're seeing school systems putting in these facial recognition proctoring systems that they just don't work. They have massive bias against people of color. It's insane. We're basically surrendering 
our autonomy to surveillance. And that is an unsafe thing to do. And the first thing was, one, we have to stop trusting that each new generation of technology is going to somehow be the one that's safe. Because we've gone from a world where everything was more or less safe through about 2000 to a world where more or less everything is either predatory or dangerous today. And so I think that's fixable. But you need to have a a law that changes the incentives that basically says you have a responsibility to anticipate and mitigate harm before shipping a product. And if there is harm, you are legally and financially responsible for it. And I don't know whether that's just at the company level or whether that gets all the way down to engineering level, whether you need to have certification of engineers, whether you need to have lots of training in this stuff. But the point is safety really matters, but it's not just safety. You also have to look at personal autonomy, which the code word for that is privacy. In their head, people think that the issue is Facebook wants your data to target with ads. If that's all they were doing, that would be no different than other markets, but that's not what they're doing at all. The danger in Facebook is that they have converted all human experience into data that allows them to essentially predict human behavior in order to sell those predictions for advertising, but then put it into recommendation engines that allow them to manipulate behavior. So that's the whole problem with QAnon and Stop the Steal and the insurrection. Those police officers, their problem with Facebook was not that their data was taken. It's that the people who were attacking the Capitol were manipulated into believing that somehow they were patriots And they went and killed a bunch of people and they maimed a whole bunch of police officers and they were manipulated. If you're one of those police officers, your whole life was turned upside down by that manipulation. This is not an issue that's going to go away. These companies are not going to fix this. I mean, they've had plenty of incentive. They chose not to do it. And I think we need to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, we've covered now uh, questions around antitrust. We've talked about safety. We've talked about privacy. We've talked about the trajectory we may be on in the United States with regard to legislation. Let me ask you maybe kind of a bigger question or a step back question on some level. You've now been part of this movement, this movement at the intersection of tech and democracy for the last five years in earnest, and it's changed. It's grown. It's it's morphed. There are a lot of new voices, different voices that are involved now. What can you say about it just from your vantage, what you've observed? You, you move in a lot of circles, journalists, academics, activists, and also, I assume, concerned people who are in industry on these issues. What does this kind of movement look like right now? Where is it headed? When I got involved in it, there were a lot of academics who've been studying this problem for a long time. I mean, my hero is a woman named Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which came out in the UK in uh, 2018, the US in 2019. And Shoshana, in that, really does what Adam Smith did to capitalism. She does to surveillance capitalism, really defines names and really describes all of the working elements of this system that is literally transforming our, our lives without our being aware of it. And she was one of many, you know, I think of Sophia Noble at UCLA, who was really deep into the issues of algorithmic bias. And, you know, I'm going to 
just a lie, just there were a million other people who were doing the same thing, right? Uh, Danielle Citron and Marianne Franks doing it for, for privacy law. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to leave out a lot of great names. The really telling thing is 80% of the people doing the heavy lifting in this are women. Many of them are women of color. And mm-hmm. it's no surprise. They've been the harm parties. They're really focused on it. And when I show up, what was not happening was the connection between the people doing the great work and the folks who could do something about it, namely the folks in Washington, that for whatever reason, the academic stuff was just not getting out of academic environments. So what I perceived was there was an opportunity for me, somebody who had worked in Washington, somebody who had demographically, you know, if you think about what's wrong with the way our society respects people, you know, I... I'm a white male in my 60s. Therefore, I had an advantage, an undeserved advantage, but I could use that advantage for good here. And so I chose to. At the beginning, it was just about trying to get press people to cover it. And then Cambridge Analytica happened. And all of a sudden, it went from Tristan and Renee and Sandy and me trying to feed stories to the press to all of a sudden, we had to read the paper every day because the press guys are way out in front of us. And when that happened, a beautiful thing took place because all those academics suddenly became sources. And so they got brought way into the sunlight. And then a bunch of them wrote really great books. And, uh, you know, there's an unbelievable book on privacy everyone should read called Privacy is Power by Carissa Veliz, who is a professor at uh, Oxford and just truly extraordinary. It's a short book that he tell you everything you need to know. And if you can, please read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Read Siva Vaihyad Nathan's book, uh, The Anti-Social, Anti-Social Media. Uh, I mean, these are really great books. If you want to really get into nitty gritty, read uh, Mindfuck by Chris Wiley. There's, there's some amazing books that really give you the context. There's a lot of great journalism that'll give you the blow by blow and the interpersonal stuff, but getting the context right is the critical thing. And so where we are today is if I go to Washington, Everyone knows the basics of what I'm talking about. They may not understand the details, but there's a core group of people in the right positions. David Cicilline at the House uh, Antitrust Subcommittee, Jan Schakowsky at the Consumer Protection Subcommittee, Frank Pallone, who runs Energy and Commerce, all of whom understand what's going on. You've got Anna Eshoo, Tom Malinowski, who are really the experts on algorithmic amplification, which is the core element of the business model that's causing so much harm. And uh, Speaker Pelosi, who's clearly very up to speed, been a victim of all the stuff. Inside the Biden administration, we've got people in key positions. In the Senate, you have Senator Warren and uh, Senator Warner and uh, Senator Blumenthal and others who are very deeply, uh, Senator Klobuchar, who are very deeply involved in all this stuff. And you know, right now, the coordination among all these people is less than I would like to see. And the public pressure for change is less than I'd like to see. That we're all still stuck on the fact that we like Instagram. Right. And I sit there and I go, you know, I've been living a life without Google for almost four years now. And what I can tell you is it's awkward, as you discovered when we began this thing and I couldn't open the Google Doc you sent me. Life without these products is not complicated. Alternatives that are safe are easily made. You can't get at it today because these guys can choke off everything. And I believe that either in Europe or the United States, the antitrust laws will eventually wear these guys down and they'll slow them down enough to create an opportunity for alternatives. And my goal is this, I carry an iPhone. I want the server for every application I use to reside on my phone. 
I do not want cloud. Cloud is a huge problem and it's a national security problem, right? We've got this issue where the competitive thing has changed from worrying about the Middle East and Russia to worrying about China. Well, right now we're hopelessly dependent on China. All of our semiconductors come from places that are either in China or places that are right next to it that they want to take over. And, you know, we have way too many systems that are dependent on them. And all this cloud stuff is immensely vulnerable, as we saw with solar winds, as we saw with the, the pipeline, as we see with all of this ransomware. And we got to make a decision. Are we serious about this stuff or not? Do we want to be an independent country? Do we want to have democracy? Because all of these things are interlinked. And this architecture and this business model that Google and Facebook and Amazon a spouse is at the heart of it. And what's going on? They're selling that exact vision into education, into healthcare, into the military. It's insane. And we need to just stop it all. We need a timeout. We'd be better off without it. We need to follow what Nicole Perlroth in her incredible book, this is what, how they say the world ends. You know, she makes this point that our intelligence agencies are totally focused on playing offense. So when they discover a vulnerability in a piece of software, they don't tell anybody. What they fail to recognize is that there's an asymmetry. 90% of the harm that can be done with those exploits takes place inside the United States. So that, you know, we need to go to defensive cyber instead of offensive cyber as our primary focus for long enough to rebuild the institutions of our country. Our side is still under man. But we got some wonderful people like yourself, right? I mean, I think about what Just Security and what the technology policy press are doing. Those are things that didn't exist a few years ago. And that infrastructure really matters. I'm just one person. And every day I bring my best. There are way better people out there doing this than I. We need thousands more people doing this. If, if everybody listened to this, call their congressperson right now and said, you must pass the Eshoo Malinowski algorithmic amplification bill. You must pass Cicilline's antitrust bills, at least five of them. Quit screwing around. It's just that people are busy. And I understand that. And it's like, I'm really sympathetic with it. And I'm going, I get it. You know, I'm an old guy. I get some free time. I happen to choose to put it here. But my great hope is that everybody will take, you know, one day a year to really get pissed off about this and make their voices heard and maybe a miracle occur. What's next for Roger McNamee? People like me are individually not important. What matters is that there are B voices. And, you know, the great thing is I look around and there's so many great voices today that weren't out there a few years ago. That gives me great hope. And I'm really, really happy about how President Biden has taken up this cause. It's going to take all of their effort to make any progress at all. But if you sat there and said, what would you need to make progress? We're on that path. We've got a long way to go, but we're on the right path. And that's, that's really important. Sounds like some of that optimism that was there in 1978 still with you. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is a country that's faced some really hard times. I mean, we went through a civil war. You know, we went through the depression. You know, it's not crazy to imagine us coming together to fix this. But I will say that COVID has exposed how deep the hole is that we dug ourselves. And 
the notion that there are people going to school board meetings to try to somehow ensure that children die of a disease unnecessarily. I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, we were trying to fight polio. I mean, if these people had been around then, you know, what, one in five kids would be in a wheelchair? The notion that people who believe that stuff think of themselves as patriots, I mean, that is a level of self-delusion that it's just tragic. And the point is, it's not because they're bad people. They have been manipulated. That's why the, one, the January 6th commission is so important. That's why the Department of Justice pursuing everyone who was involved is so important. These people, for their own personal reasons, have chosen to undermine the safety of the rest of us. They've screamed fire in a crowded theater. And that has never been protected by the First Amendment. If you listen to internet platform, they want you to believe that the responsibility for all this is on the users. That is utter nonsense. We are where we are. The harms that have happened have happened, not because of individuals sharing too much or making wrong choices, but because it was profitable to create systems based on fear and outrage. We have to force changes in these business models because the business models themselves are incompatible with democracy, with public health, with personal autonomy, and with competition in our economy. And we have lived in a world for 40 years where we have trusted businesses to make all decisions related to our economy. It was based on an economic theory espoused by Robert Bork and others that I think time has shown to be deeply flawed because the effect of it was to allow a very small number of people to profit disproportionately and to be able to impose their will and their views on everyone else. And it's allowed corporations in every sector of our economy to gain levels of economic power that make them the equivalent of governments. We haven't talked yet in this conversation about climate change, but the reason that climate change is a seemingly intractable problem is because the old guard energy companies have been able to control the conversation through all media, but lately, especially through internet platforms in a way that prevents us from doing the obvious, which is to rebuild our economy on renewable sources of energy. It's possible. It would be economically extraordinary, right? I mean, it would be the best full employment model you could come up with because those would be amazingly good jobs. The arguments against it are what? I live in California. Parts of our state are on fire, you know, again, for whatever it is, the third or fourth consecutive year we're having unprecedented levels of wildfire. Well, guess what? It's no longer unprecedented. It's now annual, right? You've had flooding. You've had ice storms in Texas, right? I mean, this is not a coincidence. These things are the result of human action. And we have a path out of it. And the path out of it for the United States of America would be the greatest economic opportunity of our lifetimes. And if we are 
going to continue to allow internet platforms to absolutely control our democratic conversation. And, and if we continue to allow them to give a political advantage to the people who spread fear and outrage, we're doomed. And it's totally unnecessary. So it's like, it's on us. Let's get this right. I mean, I'm a capitalist, but I don't think we live in capitalism today. Today, we live in, in a world of monopoly. It's nuts. The notion that all this stuff has become politicized, that was a choice. And we can undo that choice. Roger, I thank you for talking to me about these issues today. It's entirely my pleasure, Justin. Keep up the good work, man. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and our Tech Kids Unlimited intern, Nolan Duarte. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.